Heavenly Father, you are the God who speaks. You are not silent. We praise you because you are the true living God. You are not like the vain idols of the nations, those gods that are not gods, which have ears that do not hear and mouths that cannot speak. But you, O Lord, hear us, and you speak to us, and we pray that now you would help us to listen, to take to heart that which you have to say to us, that in everything we would seek your glory, honor, and praise through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Isaiah chapter 14, beginning at verse 24 then. The Lord of hosts has sworn, As I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. That I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who shall annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? In the year that King Ahaz died came this oracle. Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken, for from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent. And the firstborn of the poor will graze, and the needy will lie down in safety, but I will kill your root with famine, and your remnant I will slay. Wail, O gate, cry out, O city, melt in fear, O Philistia, all of you, for smoke comes out of the north, and there is no straggler in his ranks. What will one answer the messengers of the nations? The Lord has founded Zion, and in her the afflicted of his people find refuge. What a wonderful way to end with refuge in the city of our God something we should all understand, enjoy, and further anticipate as we long for the new heavens and the new earth, the home of righteousness. As Presbyterians, we begin teaching our children, I hope from early days, that man's chief end, or in the updated language, primary purpose, (laughs) is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And if it is our purpose, our goal, our aim to glorify God, here God speaks to us about his purpose. And of course, I think it's clear that our purpose and God's purposes are not in disagreement, for he made us for himself. We are his people, created in his likeness and image, and we are to glorify him. I don't think we can go so far as to say what God's purpose is in his essence, because that's beyond our ability. We need to remember Deuteronomy 29, 29. The hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children that we may do this law forever. And it is the law of God that we we should bring glory to him. And we should recognize that he is God. He is the great creator. 
and we are his creatures, and he is worthy of our praise and our adoration. He condescends to deal with us in our weakness, and that comes out clearly in the passage before us, particularly in the oracle concerning the end of Philistia, how cruel oppressors of God's people and other nations will be brought low, and the poor will be lifted up, and they will be strengthened. They might not get the political power, they may not get the the wealth and the prestige of this world, but they will be preserved. This is God's purpose. The Lord of hosts has sworn. We read about God swearing several places in the Bible. Psalm 95 comes to mind. God swore in his anger that the people who were brought out of Egypt would not enter the land of promise because of their disobedience. That's referenced not just in Psalm 95, but again and again in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews also tells us of the other place that God swore, and that was in dealing with Abraham. When God made his covenant with Abraham, when God graciously condescended to deal with Abraham as a sovereign Lord with a simple vassal, a simple servant who had nothing to boast of at the time, God wanted to make absolutely sure that everyone understood, and Abraham included, that the promise was fixed and would not change. And so in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, we read, For when God had made a promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, Abram, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus had gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God made the promise to Abraham that through him the whole earth would be blessed, and that his seed would arise to be that blessing to the whole earth. And Paul makes it plain in Galatians that that seed is singular. That seed is is the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, and also the son of David, the messianic king who would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And you remember that mysterious Melchizedek figure who... Abram met after battling the kings and God giving him success as he returned home with his army and his spoil. As he came back, Melchizedek met him, bringing out bread and wine, and he he offered a benediction, a blessing upon Abraham. Right the Hebrews tells us elsewhere that the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. He was the king of Salem, that is the king of peace. And he stands as a type of Christ, pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ, who will be the true and final King of righteousness and King of peace. 
But here God has sworn to Abraham because his purpose stands firm. It is always God's purpose to save a people for himself. Even before a people existed, before the universe began. I know that when I start thinking about this too much, my head starts to spin a little bit. It just doesn't make any sense. I can't wrap my finite mind around an infinite being. God who has no beginning and no end. We can say, why do we exist? Well, we exist to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But why does God exist? Because he is the self-existent one. But it's impossible for God not to exist. You ever think about that? There are things that God can't do. That's not blasphemy. We just read about one of them in Hebrews chapter 6. God cannot lie. And God cannot cease to exist. He always exists. It's mind-boggling. How is it that God always exists? And he always tells the truth. There's, There's no change in him. He has planned, and so it shall be. As I have purposed, God said, so it shall stand. Everything, everything that transpires in the universe is at God's sovereign command. I know I've said it before, but I think it's, I think it's so, so good it bears repeating. The late R.C. Sproul said, there's not one maverick molecule in the whole universe. God knows where every particle is, and he put it in its place, and it's his will that sustains it. We tend to think of things in a bigger picture. We read from Psalm 29 about how the voice of the Lord does all these things. If we go back to the beginning of the Bible and we look at the book of Genesis, we read the opening chapters, God speaks and the world comes into existence. This is our God. This is the God we worship. The God who has a plan and a purpose for everything under heaven. In our shorter catechism, we teach our children not only the chief end of man, but that God has a decree, that he has a a perfect plan and a purpose, and that he carries out that purpose and that plan through his works of creation and providence. His work of creation is making all things by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. And his work of providence is his most powerfully wise and preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. As I have purpose, so it shall stand. We get down to a very narrow purpose here in Isaiah chapter 14. Yes, everything is under God's control. Everything happens according to his will. But here God is assuring his people that they are going to be protected against this imminent threat. Now, it's interesting for us to remember for a moment the history that's going on here. It's not going to happen immediately. They're not going to be immediately rescued. The Assyrians aren't going to fall for, for some time yet. Neither are the Philistines, but they're gone. The Assyrian Empire disappears. The Philistines are no more mentioned after Nebuchadnezzar deals them their final blow. And we know that that's coming. It's, it's down the road from Isaiah's prophecy. It's years in, 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 in advance that Isaiah is speaking not just about the coming judgment of God on these places, Assyria and Philistia, and how God is going to deal with the Babylonians as well, and how he's going to bring his people back through, through the ministry of the Persian king Cyrus. People say, that, 
that can't be. How can, how can these things be? Well, because God has ordained every moment of history from before time began. We find that hard to believe. We sang moments ago, Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his works in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. What will he make plain? Everything. Everything in history will will finally make sense if we realize that it is God's sovereign hand working out his strange design, his unfailing skill that brings about all these things that are going to happen. The Assyrians were a fierce and warlike people. Everyone was frightened. We're going we're to see more of the, the dealings with Assyria as we go through the book of Isaiah. And if you've, you've read through the books of the kings, you know how, how God deals with these people, with the enemies of his people. And yet, here he is assuring them. And so, through his example, assuring us that we have nothing to be afraid of, that God will indeed break the Assyrians that he will trample them underfoot. They will no longer oppress his people. They will no longer cast a, a weight, a burden upon those who are God's people. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. You know, there are people that think that, well, you know, you guys have your God over here, and over here they have, we have to allow everybody to have their own different gods where they want and worship how they want. And, and But there is only one God. There's only one God. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the creator. He is the sustainer of all life. And he is the redeemer of his people through the Lord Jesus Christ. People say, well, you can't can't be that exclusive. But it's not exclusive. Because Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He doesn't say, well, you you must be a, a physical descendant of Abraham. If you aren't, too bad. No, God says, come. Come to Jesus. Come and find rest and refreshment and and new life in him. He will give you life. He is the Savior. He sends his disciples out from the moment he ascends, telling them that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the uttermost ends of the earth. This is God's purpose for the whole earth, that the whole earth would hear the good news that God is a loving God and a merciful God but he is not a God who will countenance and turn a blind eye toward evil. He will punish the oppressor. This is his purpose concerning the whole earth. It's interesting that earlier on in 1 Kings chapter 20, we read of the kings of Judah and Israel and their, and their fight against the Syrians. And there Ben-Hadad fights against Judah and finds that he is successful. I'm sorry, unsuccessful. It's important. <laughs> he loses. <laughs> he lo- you know what? I better just turn there. First Kings chapter 20. He loses the battle. The Syrians fled. In verse 20 we read, The king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. In verse 23, And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, their gods are gods of the hills, and they are stronger than we. And so they, are, they were stronger than we. But let us fight them again in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. 
and do this. Remove the kings each from his post and put commanders, and, and so on. He gives some advice. About it. But the, 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 the point is, the, the Syrians say, well, their God is a, a God of the hills. We are fighting in the hills. No wonder they won. Next time we'll fight them in the plain. You go on and read, this, read on how it, how it transpires that the next year they come back with a, a similar sized army and it's been replaced. And now they fight in the plain. And once again, Ben-Hadad is defeated and his army is routed. See, our God is not the God of the hills or the plain. He's, he's the God of hills and plain. He's the God of the universe. He's the God who made everything and it all belongs to him. When we read in the Psalms that the Lord says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. He's not saying, well, if you can get up to a thousand and one, you can have that cow. That'll be yours. No. He's saying, everything is mine. It's, it's figurative language. God is saying, everything belongs to me. I made it. It's mine. You belong to me. I've got a purpose for you. And my purpose is that you bring glory to me. And the purpose that I will gain that glory to myself through the events of world history this concerns the whole earth. I'm not the God of Israel only. I'm not the God of Assyria only. I'm not the God of Canadians or Americans or the Europeans, the Scottish or the Dutch. I'm the God of all the earth. Everything belongs to me. Everything will fulfill my purpose. This is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. And that's not figurative language. That's absolute. Sometimes in the Bible, all the people, all the nations, it's, it's limited. It just means a large amount. Like when we read about Jesus and his ministry and all Judea went out after him. Well, they didn't all go out after him, but a vast majority of them did. But here, when God says, I'm the God of all the earth, that's an absolute all. All the earth belongs to the Lord. He has stretched his hand over all the nations. For God, the Lord of hosts, has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Two very pointed rhetorical questions. You know what a rhetorical question is, children? You know what a rhetorical question is? A rhetorical question is a question that doesn't need an answer, because it's obvious. It's obvious. You don't need to answer the question. It's like your, your parents say to you, would you like some ice cream? That's a rhetorical kind of a question, isn't it? You, they, they know the answer before they ask you the question. Well, for most of you. If there's any of you who don't like ice cream, I'll, I'll talk to you afterwards. But a rhetorical question is one we all know the answer to. And here, here's the rhetorical question. The Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? That is, who will cancel God's plan? What's the answer? No one. No one will cancel God's plan. His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? When God sets out to do something, when he reaches out his mighty hand, his outstretched arm. What does he do? He, he doesn't bring it back until he's accomplished his purpose. One of the first places we find out about this is, is in the Exodus, when God reaches out his hand and he takes hold of his firstborn son, Israel. And he sends Moses saying, Moses, you go tell Pharaoh, let my firstborn son go. If you don't, I'm going to take your firstborn son. We know how that ended up. Pharaoh and every house in Egypt lost the firstborn. And there's wailing throughout the land, but in Egypt, I'm sorry, but in Israel, Israel and Egypt, there was no mourning. The people left quietly, triumphantly though, having been blessed by God. 
And the neighbors, their Egyptian friends, and I shouldn't say masters, they weren't friends. They were their masters, their neighbors, those who lived around them, blessed them. They, they gave them gifts. And so we read in Exodus, they, they plundered the Egyptians. They left with, with a portion of the wealth of Egypt, and they returned to the land of promise. I think it's important just to note for a moment there that as they left in the Exodus and as they went out into the, into the wilderness, they set up that tabernacle. And the tabernacle was built using the free will offerings of the people. Where did they get all those things? Where did they get all the gold and the silver and the, and the stones and the material for, for building the tabernacle? I think a large part of it was the treasures of Egypt that God had blessed his people with because he stretched out his hand and no one could turn it back. No one could stop him. This is God's purpose, to accomplish all his holy will. People might think that they can succeed against God. They might get a a, a momentary victory, a small respite, and they think that that's it. Oh, I've got my own way now. I think of Jonah. Jonah in the, in the bowels of the ship as he's sailing away from Nineveh. Nineveh, the capital of... And now my mind has failed me. It's either Philistia or Assyria. Um, but Nineveh, that great city. And as, as Jonah is headed away from it, he's, he's so happy. He thinks he's, he's, he's done it. He's gone down into the bottom into the belly of the ship. He's, he's fallen asleep. He's, he's resting. Well, well, a raging storm is threatening to capsize the boat and take everyone's life. And you remember, they're, they're all screaming out, call, call on your gods. And the captain of the ship goes down and wakes Jonah up. Call on your god, Jonah. Maybe he'll save us. And Jonah comes up and he goes, I, I know what's going on here. I, I thought I got away with it for a moment there, but I realize now that I didn't. And he tells them what they must do. Cast him into the sea. They don't want to. They're, they're decent men. They don't do things like that. We don't throw people overboard. But he convinces them that they must. And the moment they cast Jonah off the ship, they put him back into the, the will of God, God's purpose for him, that he had been trying to thwart by his own strength and wisdom, his own planning. The moment he's tossed overboard, the, the storm stops. And the prophecy of Jonah records for us that the sailors were filled with awe and wonder and began to worship the God of Jonah. See, when we see what God can do, and we see what God has done, then we shall worship him. Sometimes we think we're getting away with it. Well, the Philistines did. No, they had a, they had a track record and a history of getting away with it, didn't they? They, they had defeated God's people. They'd taken the Ark of the Covenants. Eli's sons had perished. The ark was brought into the temple of Dagon in Philistia, and they thought they had achieved their purpose. That's another great, wonderful story about the, the supreme power and wisdom of our God. For the next morning they come, and there is Dagon prostrate before the ark of God. And they pop him back up in his place. That's what you have to do with fallen idols. You have to pop them back in their place and stand them up and re- re-secure them and make sure everything's right. And off they go again. Well, the next morning, horror of horrors, Dagon has fallen down again. But this time, he's a broken idol. 
His head has come off and his hands have come off. He's defeated. He, he can't think. He can't act. He can't do anything. Well, he never could, but now he really can't. And the Philistines decide, well, we better, we better send this ark back. We better get rid of it. It's, it's nothing but trouble. But even there, when they, when they go to send the ark back to Israel, they try and stack the deck. They try and set it up so that the ark won't go there. Do you remember what they do? They take two milk cows, two cows that, that have just had calves, and they, they tie them to a cart. They yoke them together. Well, you know, newly calfed cows don't, don't usually work together in a team like a yoke of oxen. And they also don't tend to wander off from their young. They keep the, the young calves behind. And, you know, that maternal instinct is, is strong. They think, okay, well, we'll watch and see. We'll, we, we'll know that if, if this ark in this cart goes back toward Israel, then, then God did this. But if not, uh, it, was just, it just happened. It's just chance. And the scriptures record for us that the ark makes its way back, the cattle lowing all the way, and the ark is brought back to God's people. Now, the ark isn't the dwelling place of God. It's a symbol of God's being with his people. It's the ark of the covenant. It's, it's God's promise to be with his people and to bless his people. Having sworn an oath to Abraham, he's now going to keep that promise to abide with his people, to protect them and to guide them. Though the Philistines try to overthrow God's purpose and plan, it can't be done. And so God chastened them again and again. And we're not sure exactly which chastening Isaiah has in mind here when he says that the rod that struck you is broken. Don't rejoice over that, Philistia, because it's not over. From the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and, the fruit will be, and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent. You heard the expression out of the flying pen and into the fire. That's what we have a picture of here. They, they, think, they think they've gotten away with it. They think they've, they've escaped God's judgment and his punishment for their sin. And God's saying, no. No, you've relied on your power and your strength. But it's not going to avail you anything. You're not going to win out here. The firstborn of the poor will graze, and the needy will lie down in safety. And I will kill your root with famine. And your remnant I will slay. God deals in a fitting manner with those who would oppress his people. It's not cruel, it's not harsh, it's just. And his people he will succor, he will he will save, he will support, he will bless his people, those who are tender. Jesus says he bears in his bosom. I will help the poor and the downcast. I will provide safety and peace for those who trust in me. But Philistia, you're going to be cast down. Don't think you've gotten away with it for a moment. Wail, O gate, cry out, O city. Melt in fear, O Philistia, all of you, for smoke comes out of the north, and there is no straggler in his ranks. The judgment is coming. You're not going to stand in the day of judgment if you stand apart from God or stand against God. 
The Lord's purpose, the, the covenant Lord's purpose is to, to bring justice to bear upon this earth. Judgment will, will fall upon Philistia. Judgment will fall upon Assyria. Judgment will fall on every world empire and every nation until the Lord Jesus Christ returns in final judgment. And the kingdom that he has established that grows to fill the whole earth that kingdom alone will stand, for it is a kingdom that has no end. And it's here described as Zion. What will one answer the messengers of the nations? The Lord has founded Zion, and in her the afflicted of his people find refuge. The oppression of Assyria, the oppression of Philistia, the oppression of ungodly kings and governors and rulers down through the ages is incapable of bringing lasting harm. I won't say it's capable of any harm, but of lasting harm, harm of eternal consequence on those who find refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus says, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He offers protection. He offers respite from not only the world that is against us and Satan, but even from our own sinful selves. This is the gospel. This is God's good news. What will one answer to the messengers of the nations? When the nations come to us and say, where is your God? Our God is in heaven, and he does whatsoever he pleases. None can stop him, turn back his hand, or say to him, what have you done? For the Lord has founded Zion, the city of God, the city that is more than a city. It's an eternal kingdom. Let us give thanks to God for delivering us from our enemies and for keeping his purpose from all eternity to bring glory to himself. And may we give glory to him and enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. For giving us your holy word, we thank you that your word is truth and that it does speak to our souls. We pray that our souls would respond in faith and in obedience. Love to you, our Father, and to the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, and to the outpoured Spirit who works faith in us that we might believe these things and not be unsettled by the rumors and the latest information from around the world which seems to be so frightening to many. But may we trust in the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, he who is the true Prince of Peace, and who has made peace with you for us, that we might be your people forever, and that we need not fear any, for your hand is upon us. Now bless us, O Lord, as we continue to worship you through Jesus Christ. Amen.